everybody? Dan Urban and Scott Fontana are back again for another Couchside Judges. We've got live fights coming this weekend from UFC Apex, but honestly, we're not very excited for this card headlined by flyweights Jessica I and Cynthia Calvillo. So longtime MMA referee and judge Rob Hines will be joining us to spice up the show. Rob gave us such fantastic insights into his roles as a ref and judge last month, so we're thrilled to have him on the show again. I, for one, can't wait to pick his brain about the potential for 10-8 rounds in Amanda Nunes' dominant decision victory at UFC 250 last Saturday. I know Dan's curious about some more insights into how certain things ought to be judged as well. We'll also have his thoughts on some of the judging-related revelations from the Athletics Fighter Survey, which we've been talking about lately. Now, like we said, Dan, we're happy to welcome back Rob as a guest on the Couchside Judges. For those who don't know, he's been in the MMA and no-holds-barred game going back to the days when Hoist Gracie was dominating in the UFC. In other words, he's an MMA lifer. He's been a referee and judge for decades and was instrumental in helping to clarify the language for what constitutes a 10-8 round a few years ago. He's one of the few accredited by the ABC to coach and train officials for commissions throughout the country. Rob, welcome back to our show. How have you been? Been really well. Thanks for having me on again, guys. This is a pleasure. Yeah, of course. Uh, and anything new going on uh, out by you? Any word on commissions and what they're doing kind of in Illinois or anything? No, you know what? Uh, obviously, outside of the UFC, um, nobody else is actively putting things together. However, I know some of the commissions around Illinois, like Iowa and Indiana and that sort of thing, um, they've actually been taking requests from promoters for dates coming up. So we could probably start to see some things here in the Midwest. I'm guessing July, August. Oh, okay. All right. It's slowly getting back to normal, right? Yeah. You know, the UFC is wetting our appetite for now. And then hopefully a lot of these other promotions will get up and running in the next month or so. Yeah, you have to hope so. There's a lot of fighters who are obviously itching to get back in there. Yeah, me as well, man. <laughs> I can imagine. Well, hey, let, let's start it off. Uh, we'd like to actually, you know, we, we discussed on our most recent show, Dan and I, that there were some 10-8 rounds that we, you know, kind of debated one way or the other. There was, in fact, in Amanda Nunez, big win over Felicia Spencer. There were two judges... Chris Lee and Derek Cleary, who assessed 10 eighths in round four for Nunes, but Sal Diamato went a 10 nine. Now, not trying to throw Sal under the bus or anything or have you do so, but how did you assess round four of this fight? Round, round four, I gave that a solid 10 eight for Nunes. Okay. Why is that? Oh, well, she definitely checked off the damage and she checked off quite a bit of the domination. Um, duration came in spurts, and honestly, that was. That was Nunez. Um, I know on your last cast, I think it was Dan that said, you know, Nunez was almost a little bit, I think you called her merciful. You know, I think she fought a very calculated fight. I think she was very patient with what she was doing. So duration, that third D that we look for a lot of times, didn't come into play really because of the way Nunez was fighting. She wasn't, she wasn't a ball of fire just going after the finish constantly. She was taking her time and picking Spencer apart. So, um, yeah, I'm interested to talk about this. So when you're talking about duration, are you talking about in the sense that really the offense should be consistent or constant? Or, or what is what is duration? Help us define duration. I'm so glad you asked that because that was one of the things I did want to discuss with you guys even privately if we could. But duration is the amount of time 
that either damage and or dominance is happening. So I think people, you know, get into this mindset of duration of, well, that was a dominant round. So duration automatically qualifies. It doesn't work that way. If you say damage for a duration, you're talking about actual damage happening for a long period of time. You're not talking about a spurt in energy. You're not talking about, you know, just a little bit here and there. Duration is exactly what it is. It's the amount of time that damage is happening, the amount of time that dominance is happening, or the amount of time that both is happening. Does that help? I think it does. Uh, What do you think, Dan? Yeah, I was thinking, Rob, when you say duration, is that duration throughout the entire five minutes of the round or duration throughout the offense? Like, because sometimes they'll just dance around each other for a little bit. And then are you counting the duration as just the offensive parts or throughout the entire five minutes? Yeah, the, the, the duration is actually the results of the action. So, you know, like you were talking about on your previous show, Nunez actually talked herself out of 10-8 rounds probably, which there could have been a couple rounds like round one that could have been a 10-8 if Nunez would have continued pressing, having results, doing what she was doing. But again, she was very calculated. She backed off. She took her time. When When a fighter does that, they're actually diminishing that ability to assess a 10-8. So many times, it's actually it's actually the offensive or the winning fighter that kind of talks the judges out of a 10-8 because they put their foot on the brakes a little bit. Each time you put out the foot on the brakes, that takes time out of duration. Okay. That's very interesting. Yeah, I, I hadn't considered that because we were going to ask you because we both felt that round one would have qualified as, you know, we, we weren't necessarily you know, thinking this was as dominant a round or as clear a 10-8 round uh, as round four, but round one did look like a 10-8 to us as we were watching. And you're saying it's a 10-9? It's a, it's a 10-9, but you know what? It did have all the potential of a 10-8. It was up to Nunez to continue that on, to qualify duration, you know, along with the other things she was doing. So let's say there's a there's an active fighter who's listening to our show right now, and you have a, a chance to speak to them directly here are you telling them, hey, listen, you don't want to pump the brakes. If you're looking for that 10-8 round, you want that dominant round, you've got to push for it. Is that right? Absolutely. And to be honest with you, you know, as a judge, we don't talk to people in the locker rooms and that sort of thing. But, you know, there are times that we do, or we're in the same area as fighters and we answer questions. But really, as a referee, a lot of times, those are some of the conversations in the locker room is, hey, if I really want to, if I really need you to stop the fight, what do, what, do, what do you need to see? Or if I really want the judges to give me a solid look at this round, what do I need to do? The fighters that ask those questions, and obviously they would need to get um, a correct answer from the official, but those are the things that help drive fighters to better strategies, especially, especially if it's competitive or if they feel like the rounds are going to go the duration. How do they win a round? And then how do they win around really decisively? So when we talk about 10-8 and 10-7, how does that actually happen? So yeah, a lot of times fighters do ask that. Interesting. That's that's really great to hear. Yeah, Rob, real quick, can I ask you if being saved by the bell plays any role in this? Because we saw in round four, Nunez had a, a deep rear naked choke locked in as the round expired. Does that play any role in the scoring? No, there's, there's never saved by the bell. There's only the five legal minutes that existed. Okay. So, you know, I know a lot of people said, well, 
if there were two or three more seconds, she would have finished it. If there were two or three more seconds, she would have broke her arm or passed her out or whatever. That doesn't exist. Okay. I, I got you. Good question. That almost sounds like the concept of, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Minority Report, but we're kind of talking about pre-crime and then crime. <laughs> right. Interesting. Uh, the other fight from Sunday, or from Saturday, excuse me, that Dan and I had some 10-8 debate from was Alex Caceres making that big dominant lopsided victory, whatever you want to call it, over Chase Cooper. Um, we thought, oh, Dan thought round one was a 10-8. I thought round three was a 10-8 but I don't think we agreed with each other on that anyway. So are we completely off base to be thinking 10-8s in this fight at all? I, I think you guys have been in a really strong what what you would like to see, what you would believe would be a 10-8. I don't think you guys I don't think you guys are wrong or off kilter, but take take the full five minutes for what it was. Um, if you took that round one and as a judge you said, you know what? The, the way he dropped Hooper and, and hurt him and all that other stuff, you know, if you felt that that was enough of a qualification for a 10-8 and you wrote that score down, you would have a solid reason for it. I just don't believe that, you know, well, it was close enough to a 10-8. We believe that the scoring system should be around a 10-8 for this type of thing, so we're going to do it. I don't think that should be part of it if you're really making an honest assessment on the system that exists. The previous conversation we just had about duration helps me see round one clearly as a 10-9 now because you see Caceres takes the takes his foot off the gas after he drops him, basically lets him recover. But I was seeing uh, major reactions from every strike Caceres was landing. That's why initially I had gone 10-8. But your ex- explanation of duration helps me see uh, more clearly for a 10-9. Yeah, so so when we look at that, that fight's actually a really cool example. Um, that fight's a great example of the true, the true benefit of a fighter's experience versus inexperience, and then also a true test of somebody just getting beat for three straight rounds. You know, getting getting beat up a little bit. You know, definitely definitely a dominant force for Caceres. You know, he he controlled what was going on, which control really doesn't come into the judging piece of it. But we're looking at three solid rounds of one fighter clearly winning each round which means one fighter clearly winning a fight. And I think that's what happens a lot of times too. Sometimes we get wrapped up into, well, I think, you know, this person won the fight. Listen, if it goes to the judge's decision, they really don't win a fight. They have to win the majority of the rounds. So, you know, when we talk about Nunez Spencer, and I think it was you that mentioned that was one of the most lopsided 50-45s or 50-44s that you've ever seen. You're right. It was a very it was very clear that Nunez won every second of this fight, if you if you want to take it that way. But you know, that whole lopsided, the lopsided comes with the fifty, five, ten point rounds. That's the lopsided piece. Now, whether there are nines or eights or sevens on the other side, you know, it shows how much it was lopsided or how much damage or dominance duration was done. But yeah, you know, any anytime somebody wins every round. Um, you could consider it lopsided. And then there's the really close 50 to 45 where each round was well contested, but it just so happens that one fighter edged out or won each one of those rounds. Right. So would you agree with me when I say things like uh, in the Hendricks-George St. Pierre fight where I say things along the lines of, okay, Hendricks may have won the fight, 
but GSP won the game, so to speak, because he was able to actually win more rounds. Yeah, that's a, you know that's a really good point and a really good example. There are those times. There are times where if you look at the fight as a whole, let's look at it, you know, Pride Fighting Championship style. When you look at the fight as a whole, you go, man, this this man or woman, they clearly won the fight. But then when you look at it from what we have, we have a scoring system for five minutes apiece, and it doesn't work out that way. It doesn't. It doesn't mean that maybe somebody won the war, but they didn't win the individual battles. Sometimes that happens. It's interesting that you bring up the idea of pride scoring because we were going to talk to you about the athletics fighters survey that they put out <laughs> the results of last week. Now, yeah. obviously, there were some very interesting revelations there about myriad topics in MMA, but we obviously focus on judging, so we want to talk about some of the, the things we saw in there. So let's actually just jump in just on the same thought. There was one uh, there was one question that surveyed the fighters what they thought about the idea of going to a full fight scoring system as opposed to the by rounds. Now, 60% of fighters supported round by round, but there was still some interest from fighters about kind of the pride style. I don't think it works. I don't think Dan... Agree. I think Dan agrees with me as well. But what are your thoughts? Well, I'll say this first and foremost. It's hard. I I judge. You know, for when when I started judging, there were there were times where we had thirty minute time limits, fifteen minute time limits, etc. And we had to score the fight as a whole. There's a winner or a loser. I'll tell you what, man. Right now, focusing for five minutes at a time is exhausting. Oh, I bet. Focusing for fifteen, thirty minutes at a time is unbelievably hard if you want to give an honest assessment now if you want to if you want to take the easy road and say well you know what i'm just going to take the highlights of that fight and that's how i'm going to assess it you can do that but when we talk about full fight scoring imagine yourself sitting somewhere for 15 straight minutes and never losing focus oh i can't do that not not a prayer for me. <laughs> Focus has been my problem for my whole life. <laughs> I'm I'm the biggest fan in the world of pride. And the rules within pride of the fight, you know, the the full fight scoring system, I love it all, but it's hard, man. You know, for the fighters that that probably show support for it, and I did read the survey, you know, a lot of them did mention, well, the thing that scares me is if if my opponent has a strong end to the fight, are they going to give it to him or her? And that's very valid. So again, when we look at assessing a full fight, first of all, it's extremely difficult. And I guarantee you we would have more debates than we do with the current system as it is. Guarantee it. So, and that actually leads into another question, which I'm sure you're going to have some strong opinions on here. This was in particular... Relating to, actually, I'll just read the full question here. For the most part, do you consider MMA judging to be competent? That was the bar that was required to be cleared. And two-thirds of the 170 fighters surveyed said no, with only about a quarter saying yes. Now, at least to me, that sounds like sour grapes. But more practically, I think it highlights how much fighters and commentators just don't understand the criteria that you guys use. What is your reaction to that, and especially thinking about you know, the idea of switching to a different scoring system. Well, my initial reaction to it is I, I support it. You know, they're, they're, they're right in a lot of ways. And here's where, here's where they're right in saying that. 
Um, I think using the word competent or incompetent is incorrect because they really don't know how skilled or how practiced or, or how educated the judges are. So I think the word competent or incompetent is incorrect. However, the, the, where I do support them and believe that the fighters are correct is nobody ever sits down with them and explains this to them. Nobody explains the rules. Nobody explains the regulations. Nobody explains the judging criteria unless they unless they do it on their own and they go to a class, which very few fighters have done or coaches. They never get the real information. So all they have is what other people say or what they personally believe. Now, if you play in the National Hockey League, you bet your ass that during your training camps and, you know, you have fighter meetings and you go to NHL meetings and you do all that. They know exactly what's up. So when they make a rule change, they meet with every team, every player, every coach. It's explained. It's demonstrated. All those things. We have none of that mixed martial arts. So I totally respect and I actually support when people think that judging or refereeing isn't where it should be because they really don't know what it should be. I think that's because a lot of a lot of those major leagues have been, have a union of, you know, the players associations and the fighters don't have that. If they had that, I'm, I'm sure they could easily organize something to be educated on the subject. Well, Dan, that's a great point. And that's actually that's actually a little bit further down the list. The first on the list is they actually have an organization that lives, breathes, and knows the sport. We don't even have that. Hmm. We have politicians. So, you know, we start with things like the NHL itself. And then we talk about the rules and regs committees and, and you know, the players committees and the associations and all that. All those things that they have, we have none of it in MMA. None. So would like one one large governing body that oversees the entire sport, would that be more uh, helpful? You know what? Before I die, that's my dream for this sport <laughs> is to have that. Um, hopefully before I die, I can contribute to an organization like that. Until then, I'll do the best I can with everything I have to work with. How realistic is something like that? It's realistic if there was an investor that would be willing to go all in on it. Because, because it you know, obviously you know, the NFL wasn't built with a few dollars or, you know, a little bit of support and that sort of thing. I believe if there were somebody like a Mark Cuban or somebody like that who would really put the energy and the funding into it, we could have a worldwide organization that oversees it. You know, it's, it's you, you hit the nail on the head as far as what I was thinking about a person. You, you said Mark Cuban, just as you were talking, I was thinking Mark Cuban. So that, that would certainly add up. You know, he's obviously interested in the sport. He's, he's been in and around it for many years now to, to actually steer us back though, to the, the athletic fighter survey. Cause there are a bunch of things in here that I, we, we really want to get to you, uh, get your thoughts yeah. on in particular, the big question that I was very surprised at the response for at least was open scoring. They asked fighters, what they thought about trying to implement something like this. And there was overwhelming support for this. It was almost 80%. Uh, what's your perspective, uh, you know, as a, both a judge and a referee to open scoring and, and the fact that fighters obviously want it in some form? Yeah. You know, as a, as a referee doesn't affect me at all. I get, you know, it's not that I could care less, but it has zero effect on me for judges. You know, here's where I'd like people to look at both sides of it. So open scoring, I think I think it's a great philosophy. 
In fact, one of the guys that I get to work with, he's the commissioner for the Kansas Athletic Commission, Adam Rohrbach, and he's the first one to implement open scoring for Invicta. Yes, we watched that too. We were very interested in that. So, yeah, we've had talks about it and stuff like that. And, you know, he wanted to make sure he had all his ducks in a row. So the good thing about open scoring is everybody knows where the fight's at, round by round. Everybody knows where the fight's at. No problem. Here's the challenging part. So let's say we we, we end the first round. Two of the judges give a 10-8. One of the judges give a 10-9. Or two of the judges give it for one fighter. One of the judges give it for another. And now the coaches or the cornermen or whatever want to debate. And they want to argue with the referee. They want to argue with the commission. Now we're starting to take away from the attention of the athletes. The other thing, too, is if I know that I'm tired in the third round and I've lost a 10-9 round and a 10-8 round, how am I going to come out mentally and emotionally for that third round? Yeah, I think some people would probably crumble. Other people may rise to the occasion. Right. So just think of those things. When, when we bring a lot of those things in, we have to look at, first and foremost, how it affects the fighter. You know what? The coaches the judges, everybody else, let's let's see how this would affect the fighter. Now, you see somebody that gets beaten down, gets beaten down, and they're debating in their own mind, do I have enough to go on? And now they learn that they're down 20 to 16 going into the third round of a three-round fight. Do they quit on the stool because of that? I bet or, some of them do. Or, or do they muster up a big middle finger and say, you know what, I'm going to go out there and shock the world. But... That wouldn't, that wouldn't be a mindset unless it was open to them. So again, there, there's great benefit to it. Most of the benefit is external. It's fans, it's you know coaches, it's all that other stuff. I, I always like to look at it to see how is it affecting the fighter because they're the most important. Right. But the funny thing is that these results come directly from fighters. And, and again, you're talking about four out of every five fighters would like to know where they stand in the middle of a fight. And obviously there's probably elements that you spoke about just now that many fighters hadn't even considered. But, I mean, they're pushing for it. Yeah, I think, you know what? Let's, let, let's continue the trials. Let's see, how, let's see what effect it has. And then, if it, and then if it's something that is viable and works, let's do it. Totally, totally cool with it. But it, I, I think everybody needs to take all those things into consideration now. When we look at, you said, how, ma- how many, what percentage of the fighters were all for it? It was 79 and change. It was like 79.4. I would love to know how many of those fighters go to judges' decisions on the regular and how many of them are finishers. I would love that. That would be interesting to know that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that. that only the athletic uh, personnel would really know, of course. But I really right. wish it wasn't anonymous. I want to know who some of these fighters are <laughs> there were some interesting uh, reactions from there too uh, still on the topic though of of open scoring dan and i have talk, spoken about this topic before and one of the things we're concerned about with open scoring is the idea of and maybe this doesn't affect the fighters as much as it affects the fans but the idea of coasting if you know let's yeah. say you know amanda nunez knows and really knows and doesn't just assume that she is up you know 40 to 35 in round four or after round four what does she do at that point does it even affect it because a fighter really i mean if they're winning a fight by that much they must know anyway well you know and in a lot of those things would come into play right are they tired and they're like you know what i've got this thing i'm going to try to dance around for five minutes because i'm exhausted or do they just ignore it and say i know i'm up in this fight but i need to keep going i need to keep pushing 
again, those are things that in the fighter's mind, they'll decide and only they can decide. But that is, that is one of the pieces of it is, you know, if I know I'm up two rounds, 10 to eight, am I, am I really going to push forward hard or am I going to stay at a safe distance so I don't get that crazy Cody Garbrandt knockout from hell, you know, <laughs> do, do I do that? So yeah, again, again, there's a lot of benefits to open scoring, um, some detriments to it, but it's definitely worth looking at. And if that's what the fighters feel that they want to see, you know, we should have an opportunity to try to test that. Now, would as a referee, would you have a shorter leash uh, as far as taking a point for uh, for coasting? Nope. Okay. My 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 assessment for for refereeing stays the same no matter what. Like if like if I knew fighters were up ten eight ten eight, am I closer to stopping the fight? No. I'm going to assess exactly what's in front of me at the time and make my decisions on that. Well, what about the other side of that coin? If if there is a fighter who is absolutely just kind of dancing around for the for that round, do you think that in a sense of open scoring, you need to have some sort of rule that says, hey, if you're not going to engage, we will take a point. There will be no warnings. You take a point. And then like, let's say it happens again. You just disqualify them because they're not fighting anymore. Well, that foul already exists. Timidity is a foul. So if if I feel that a, that a fighter is purposely either avoiding the fight or not engaging in the fight, that's where the warnings and stuff come on. By by you know you guys suggesting or saying that, well, knowing that now with the open scoring, do you have a shorter leash? That's unfair. Okay. That's an unfair assessment because timidity is what it is, and there's parameters around it, and I would need to adjust that now. Would I, would I say to the fighter, if I felt they were coasting, you need to engage, you need to get into this? Of course. Would I be quicker to, to assess a point deduction? No, because my procedures are solid. I know exactly what I need to see, how I need to see it, and when I need to see it before I do those things. Okay. A, a, more, a less experienced referee might take that shorter leash avenue. Okay. I think that's probably it for open scoring. There were some other things we also wanted to talk about. Yeah, I was I was curious. Immediate impact is scored higher than cumulative impact. So you you almost see like leg kicks don't have an initial impact usually. Usually that's something that develops over the course of a fight. At what point do you start scoring that as immediate impact? When you see how it affects the fighter that's taken on. Okay. You know, I've been uh, you know, we we we've seen we've seen actually and my 14-year-old son, he's loving it because the TKO leg kicks that have come up, I've only talked about it to him in theory, and he's only seen it in he's only seen it in one of my bouts once. But now that he's seeing it on the regular, he's understanding, you know, the true value and what leg kicks could do and all those other things. So we need we just need to look at how does it affect that other fighter? Did they immediately switch their stance? Or did they take it on? We feel that was a hard shot, so we're going to give that some weight. Or was it a hard enough shot that it actually dropped them or incapacitated them for a moment or whatever? One of the other things that we do in judging is we give weight to things. Not every hard punch is the same. So when we look at when we look at things like leg kicks, we see if that immediate impact had an effect on the other fighter. If it didn't, we still we still assess it but maybe we don't give it as much weight as we thought, oh my God, look what that did to them. Look how they reacted. Look what they did. That gets a little more weight. Does that answer it? Right. So like in the first round, a lot of fighters, they'll they'll just eat it and it looks like it almost has zero effect. 
But we know later on in the fight, these add up, and now you start seeing some more reactions towards it. So would you say it's less it's less weighted in the first round as it is in the fourth round? It shouldn't be, to be honest. I think, you know, I, I think the mindset that as the fight moves on, I, I get where people would understand, well, you know, it's it, it's been it's been affecting them to this point. We have to take every strike and the effect of it for what it is at that time. If you assessed it with heavy weight at that time, great. If you didn't, great. But the the subsequent strikes after that, you have to grade those for what they were. You can't say, well, you know, that leg drop kicked him because of what happened in the first round and now we're in the third round. You have to take that one strike for what it was. Was it hard enough to drop that fighter? Yes or no? That's what I'm kind of saying. Like in the first round, it doesn't really have an immediate effect. They just walk through. It looks like nothing even happened to them. But in the fourth round, now it looks like, you know, there's actually some damage coming from it. <laughs> well, it depends. If you're in if you're in the first round with Douglas Lima or Justin Gagey, it probably would. Right. I'm just saying. They're... <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I told, I, I'm messing with you. I totally get what you're saying. And you're right. You know, obviously when fighters are fresh, obviously when they're not tired, not damaged, anything like that. It, a lot of times things like leg kicks take a little while to wear in, for sure. Yeah. All right. I, I think that, that answers it for me. To get back to some of the stuff from the fighter survey, actually, real quick, um, there was one uh, ranked UFC fighter, unnamed, uh, who echoed something that many people have talked about before of the idea of adding judges. So let's say example five uh, to a fight. Do you think that that's something that is something that would ever be considered or, or there's any reason to do it or not? Well, it's, it's, it's already been ongoing, but in glory. So, so glory kickboxing, um, right. for a lot of their events, they implore five judges. Um, I've been, you know, I, I've been privy to some of those events where they do have it makes no difference. You know what, if, if, if you've got a tight round and you've got three judges to two, you know, if you've got a dominant round, you got four judges to one, the amount of judges, it's pretty insignificant, at least in the tests and the events that they've been in. Um, more judges are, you know, it's, 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 it's more ammunition for debate. I guess that's true. I don't, I don't think it's a necessary thing. Um, could it work better? It could possibly work better, but it's less about the amount of judges versus the quality of the judges in the chair. Yeah, that makes sense, of course. Yeah, I definitely agree that having more than one judge is uh, definitely beneficial. I think having one judge would be a mistake. Well, I think, you know, here's where I, here's where I find it really funny, guys. Even even you guys, you know, everybody out there, they always talk about, well, I don't agree. Well, I don't agree. I don't agree. I agree. I don't agree. I agree. I don't agree. Whatever. The judges, the judges aren't put there to all agree. They're to assess on the same system, the same criteria, and the same scoring system. They're to assess the same things the same way, but they're not put there to agree or not agree. So I always find that funny when I hear, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that judge, but I could see why they saw it that way. Exactly. That's why we have three. If we were worried about the agree, disagree thing, we would have one. We we would have one judge with a big old monitor and they would make the decision. So obviously we, and and this is acknowledging something I think is already there that there, there are certain biases, but I mean, every, Every individual is different, and you can read these guidelines and interpret them in, in a different way, right? Well, that's for sure. And, you know, that's where that's where a unified body helps most is in those times. 
because just like just like fans, just like media, you know, just spectators, all that stuff. There are referees that believe here's here's the exact right time to stop a fight. Or if they grab the cage once, I'm automatically deducting a point. I'm not even warning them. There are people who have strong opinions on the rules. And then there are the judges that, you know, don't believe in 10, eight rounds or whatever that looks like. So yeah, each, each individual is up to their own mindset, but if, if they pay attention to the guidelines, the way they're intended, it would be better. Okay. Now, one, just one more question, actually. And this was something again, from the, from the fighter survey. And this was part of a response from a former UFC champion who said that they believe seven out of 10 fights are pretty easy to call. Um, they also, they had also said they believe the other 30% get botched. Um, you can react to the latter too, but specifically the first part, what percent of fights would you say are relatively easy for you or really anyone else to assess? I don't, I don't think any of it's easy. I think, I think there are definitely a lot of rounds that there's an extreme amount of clarity on who wins and by how much do they win. So, you know, I, 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 I think, well, it's not even that I think. I know that it's at a way, way higher percentage than people think. Do I think 70%? Do I think 80%? I honestly don't know. But the things I do know, it's an incredibly high percentage that at least one, two, even three of the judges, they get it right. I mean, you know, it's kind of an odd question because, you know, first of all, people look at the UFC, they look at Bellator, they look at PFL. And that's and that's how they grade the sport. They don't they don't they don't look at regional shows. They don't look at they don't look at the events that happen actually way more frequently than the big events. We just look at the big events like you look at that survey and every single one says UFC fighter, UFC, UFC, Bellator, Bellator. I think there might have been a couple of cage warriors. Yeah, there, there was at least some cage warriors. Yeah. But you never saw who's your fight club from, you know, um, Indiana or anything like that. You didn't see any of those fighters survey. So it's, it, it's kind of lopsided as well. Sure, sure. That makes sense. Um, you know, I, I think that pretty much covers the ground that we wanted to discuss with you uh, today, Rob. So again, thank you very much for your time. D- Dan, did you have anything uh, real quick too? I think, uh, I think that about covers it. It was a, another informative episode. Absolutely. Really, uh, really helping us because we want to get better at this. No, you you guys are fantastic. I enjoy being on. Well, thank you very much again, and uh, we look forward to speaking to you again soon, Rob. So take care, and uh, good luck. Thanks, Rob. Take care, guys, and keep up the great work. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's always fun having Rob on. This was his second time on the show. Again, I'm I'm coming out, you know, more knowledgeable. What about you? I I always learn things when I talk to Rob or when I talk to any official, really, but uh, especially when... Rob comes on the show. He's always good at really explaining things to both you and I, and hopefully for the listeners at home. I, I hope you guys are getting something out of this as well. Yeah, he's but, also, he also uh, had a few perspectives that I didn't expect him to have. It was a bit eye-opening. Absolutely, for sure. I'm sure we'll have him on again. But, you know, let's move forward. We've got, as much as no one's really looking forward to this card this weekend, Saturday we have another one from UFC Apex. This one's headline as we mentioned earlier, by Jessica I and Cynthia Calvillo. Dan, what are we looking at here? We're looking at a rather lackluster card, at least on paper. Um, 
glad this one isn't costing 70 bucks. <laughs> I don't see how they would ever even be able to sell this one. He could give me a few bucks and I'll watch it. <laughs> yeah, you gotta pay me to watch it. Just give me uh, like make it like a coupon. Like if you watch this, you get you get ten dollars off the next paper. Yeah, but you know we're gonna watch it anyway because of course. it still fights, and you know we still love it. It still fights. We still love it, and we do a show talking about this, so we can't really skip it, can we? Yeah, there's no skipping it. Not like <laughs> we wouldn't have skipped it anyway. And, and look, I, I don't mean to disrespect uh, Jessica and Cynthia Calvio, who obviously I is a high-level flyweight, uh, and I'm actually a big fan of Calvio's game. I've, I've enjoyed watching her pretty much since she debuted in the UFC, but this being a five-round headliner is not interesting in the least, uh, and I just don't have many thoughts on the matchup itself. I guess my pick is Calvio. You know, She's finally come up to 125 pounds after she missed weight all these times at strawweight. I think she'll be reinvigorated here i think she'll respond very well i'm thinking jessica i is going to win this one she's going to be the bigger fighter not that that always means anything she's also had weight issues making uh, 125 her last fight was at 131 a catch weight bout i, I think the size is going to be uh, her advantage especially over five rounds yeah i guess we'll see you know i'm We've seen smaller guys doing pretty well in the past. You know, Gilbert Burns wasn't necessarily the bigger guy against Tyron Woodley, and he pretty much pieced up the former champ, didn't he? Yeah, but I don't know if Cynthia has that same ground game that Gilbert has. Well, that's not fair to compare, but she's pretty solid. Yeah, she does yeah, have but... some good sub wins. I mean, she's sub Pearl Gonzalez, who's a pretty high name. But what about uh, what about any other fights here? Obviously, the top end doesn't look great, and. I mean, for me personally, it's not really the strongest top to bottom either at all. It's it's pretty low. But is there anything you're looking forward to? The fight I'm most looking forward to is Mirab Divalashvili taking on Gustavo Lopez on short notice. Lopez stepped in to replace Ray Borg. Lopez is the current Combate Americas bantamweight champ. And I, I love watching Mirab fight. I'm excited to see how this one goes with Lopez making his UFC debut on such short notice. Could be pretty interesting. Valdezvili's had some hard luck losses in the UFC so far, so I'm I'm very interested to see him again as well. For me, probably the the fight I'm most interested in though is the Carl Roberson versus Marvin Vittori because this one was supposed to happen, uh, I believe at Jacksonville actually, and it was scrapped during fight week. And Vittori was so mad he was confronting Roberson in the lobby of the hotel. Wow. Uh, and so we got some bad blood there. Yeah, we've got a little bad blood, so now they're doing it again. And, uh, you know, they're both solid middleweights, so I'm looking forward to that. I also like, just in general, that they've put four women's fights on this card. Obviously, there's the headliner, too. They buried kind of the other three on the prelims, but it's just nice to see the women's divisions getting more support as well because I think the the growth in those divisions is just fantastic, you know, month over month, year over year. You just see the quality of the fights and the fighters improving so rapidly. Yeah. Uh, and it's great to say. One last fight I'm interested in was Charles Rosa versus Kevin Aguilar. I just want to I just want to see how Rosa bounces back after being thoroughly dominated by Bryce Mitchell. All right, fair enough. That was yeah, that was a very clear uh, and dominant win for Mitchell there, but uh you know, I, I think I think Rosa will be fine. That was his first fight after after I believe a two year layoff. It was something along those lines. It was a very long layoff. For this weekend from the judges, I expect top flight judges will be in Nevada once again, uh, as they usually are. You know, we probably see somebody like Saudi Amato. Hopefully, Eric Colon as well, who was my, my top judge the other day. Junichiro Camillo as well. 
know, judging has been just so on point lately. I, I'm confident it's going to continue this yeah. weekend as well. So yeah. at least there's that. Yeah, let's keep the ball rolling on that. For sure. Let's just talk at the end here. I really want to break down my thoughts on this card in general because I think it, I just look at this card and I see a real D-level UFC event. It, it seems like that there was nothing effort-wise put in other than just saying, let's come up with 12 fights that we can put on air. Find some bodies. Go. And I didn't like that. Yeah, they definitely could have put somebody that one of those fights from last week. Like this, There's no reason why this card couldn't be the headliner of Sterling and Sandhagen. I think they could have pushed that a week. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I understand the point of trying to get uh, a, a pretty stacked pay-per-view event because, you know, I for one felt I got my money's worth with all the fights that were on there. But, yeah, I, I think it needed something a little more punchy at the top than, than what we have here. No offense to I and Calvillo. They're just, they're not established names, really, when it comes to drawing power. I mean, um, we've th- seen these cards before. Uh, where- sure. On Strike Force Challenger series, yes. Yeah. I used to watch them back in the day. <laughs> the drawing power is not really there, which is why it's not on pay-per-view. But a lot of times, these cards turn out to be pretty darn good. No, of course they do. And and I expect to be surprised. I, you know, if that, if that makes any sense. I actually do expect to be surprised here and come away with something I wasn't expecting. But on the whole, this event really looks to me like it's just the UFC rushing back to business to fulfill its ESPN contract obligations in terms of the number of events to holds in a year. Uh, and they don't care how it gets done. They just said, okay, we just got to put something together. Let's do it. But, you know, we're, we're going to watch anyway. Like we said, it's, it's it doesn't matter. You and I are going to watch, but are most people? I don't know. That's all for now for this installment of the Couchside Judges. Like Scott said, we'll be watching this weekend regardless, keeping an eye on the judging as usual. If the judges continue turning in on-point scorecards, we'll be able to give you another segment of past judgment. Thanks again to Rob Hines for taking the time to speak with us. Make sure to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Couchside Judges, as well as myself at Dan Urban MMA. Follow me on Twitter also at Scott underscore Fontana. Like I always say, stay healthy and safe. See ya. See ya.